Hi, I'm Caitlin. Hi, I'm Rebecca. We're not from Memphis, but we love it. Welcome to Memphis Type History, the podcast. So today for Memphis Type History Podcast, it's me, Caitlin, talking with Neil Cameron of Strictly Elvis, and he is going to tell me about some shadier moments of Memphis history. Is that, that's probably the most accurate way to put it, huh? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, uh, Neil, introduce yourself. Let's get going. Let's get into this. <laughs> okay. Yes. Sorry about the slight delay this morning. Um, oh, you're, in, you're in China, right? You're in... I am. Oh, okay. So, okay. Well, we can be excused, I suppose, for the slight delay with the uh, the miles between us here. So, yeah. Um, where are you? Okay. Tell tell everyone where you are. Okay. Well, I'm in uh, <laughs> Suffolk, which is in England. We're just on the east coast of England. It's kind of about a hundred miles northeast of London. So, uh, just on the coast. It's kind of the the rural part of, uh, of of England. So, lots of countryside around here. And I'm currently in my office. So, it's uh, so a it's a gloomy gray day here in the UK, but what's new there? That's what it's like every single day here, I'm sure. So, <laughs> um, yes, I'm, I'm Neil Cameron and I work for a company called Strictly Elvis. And we have been bringing groups to Memphis of Elvis fans since 1972. I myself have been going to Memphis for the last 16 years, um, several times a year. So I kind of consider it a sort of home from home almost. Um, in fact, I probably know it better than I know my own hometown and I do sightseeing tours. So I know all the streets and the ins and outs and how to drive around the city. And of course, over the years, uh, you get to know a little about the history, not only the Elvis side, but the other interesting history that there is in Memphis because it really does have some great hidden and uncovered history in the city, which I, I really like uh, learning about. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you because I, I don't exactly know how Rebecca and I met you, but it was, I think, when we published the book maybe or before. And it was because of Strictly Elvis it was more Elvis related, I think. So I'm excited to talk to you today about something a little bit different than that. That's right. Yeah, it was when you did the book. Um, I, you know, again, I can't remember how I found out about the book, but I'm sure it was through that wonderful invention of Facebook, where you can find <laughs> out about absolutely everything. And I remember the, the page coming up and I was thinking, wow, this, this sounds like a really interesting new take on, on Memphis, because I'm not criticizing anybody, but a lot of Memphis books previously had always been about the music side of Memphis, which obviously that's a big, big part of Elvis, um, Elvis, part of Memphis' history. <laughs> I mean, almost the same thing sometimes, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's, and, and so there wasn't anything out there which was telling the story about the people who make Memphis what it is and about the historic buildings and, and the, the history you don't hear about so much. And it was lovely to read your book. And then, um, yes. And then I think that's how, um, I met you guys. You came out to Sun studio once to meet me. And then I met you, I think at the arcade as well on both those occasions. And brought us some tea. I did bring you some tea. So, (laughs) well, that's what we have here. I, that's, that's why I was late this morning. If, if I'm t- going to tell the truth, it's because I wanted to drink a cup of tea. <laughs> it, it's the law here in the UK, and I don't want to fall out of a, Her Majesty if I don't have my daily quota of tea every morning. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You sent me a long list of, like I said at the top of the show, ne'er-do-wells, um, motley crew people of Memphis. I don't know, just a little meandering walk through the dark side, I guess. 
Um, and yeah. I am really excited to hear about these people. So I'm just going to let you tell me some stories. <laughs> okay. Well, well, first of all, I have to say, I don't want to put anybody off visiting Memphis. It's a wonderful city. It really is. And the things I'll be talking about are, are things that happened in the past. So no, no need to worry about going to Memphis. You're perfectly safe. And uh, it's a wonderful city. But all cities have a dark history. And Funnily enough, that seems to be what fascinates people. Um, over here in the UK, in London, we have, um, you've probably heard of uh, the character Jack the Ripper. Um, this is a, a serial killer who, who uh, stalked the streets of East London um, 130 years ago. But every single year, there are books and there are documentaries about him. No one knows who he was. No one has ever been able to put a face to the name. Um, it's a big, big crime mystery here in the UK. And in fact, London has its own Jack the Ripper Museum. So we have a museum here dedicated to a serial killer. It seems very strange, but this is, this is how the sort of dark side of cities sort of really still play on our consciousness and how they're so very interesting to people as well. And I think... Over the last few years in particular, we've seen, obviously, the rise of, of podcasts, um, such as the wonderful Memphis-type history podcast, oh, uh, but shucks. other ones as well. <laughs> and there's been quite a lot of crime-related podcasts, which seem to be getting quite a lot of uh, awards and, and uh, are highly lauded in, in the sort of podcast industry and there's also been the netflix series as well was it uh, what was the big one making a murderer and then making um, a murderer yeah the keepers most recently the, was a really big the, one i think the keepers the one about the nun that's right that was a big one as well so for, for whatever reason i don't know but the sort of uh, the the Naidu wells the shady characters in life always seem to have uh, more of an interest uh, they capture the public's imaginations more as well so yes yeah, so memphis is no different with that whatsoever so let, let's start with uh with someone who a lot of people have never heard of uh this is a music star from memphis um of course elvis jerry lee lewis johnny cash roy orbison all these great artists recorded at sun studios down there in memphis um, but there was one guy who only recorded a couple of tracks but he was a fantastic singer but he actually had a bigger career um, in crime than in music. Oh. And, this is, and this is a guy called Jerry McGill. He was Memphis uh, native. And in 1959, he went up to Sun Studio and he cut a couple of tracks, just uh, uh, a one single, two-sided single uh, for Sam Phillips. And uh, you can find the tracks online, actually, if you, if you go onto YouTube. I, I think uh, they're both on there. Uh, there's one called Love Struck and there's another one called I Want to Make Sweet Love. And they're great, great tracks. This guy had a fantastic voice, quite an operatic voice in a way. Uh, he recorded with a group called the Topcoats, and they were a big group in Memphis at that time. But this guy, despite being a fantastic singer and potentially having a great, great future in the music industry decided that he just loved being a criminal more he just he just loved stealing he just loved committing crimes so uh jerry mcgill it's rumored that or he used to boast that he had 97 criminal arrests in memphis um over the course of his life wow which is quite a few. I mean, yeah. that's that's pretty good going. I mean, I'm and dang it, to, almost made it to a hundred. Almost to that century, which uh, must have really annoyed him right there. I mean, that's really good because I'm only up to about twenty myself in Memphis, <laughs> and I, I don't know how many you are, but undisclosed. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I want to be, like, <laughs> be like Jerry McGill one day and get 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 to that magic 
97 or maybe the 100. Um, now, obviously, there's always a little bit of bravado. There's a little bit of bragging when it comes to uh, these things. But at least 40 have actually been confirmed. Um, there was a documentary made about Jerry, which I'll, I'll mention later on. And when the researchers were doing it, they went to the Memphis Police Department and they found that there were at least 40 that they could find on record. So he, he did have the, uh, he really did have that reputation and uh, he wasn't, uh, wasn't wrong when he said he was a, a career criminal. Just uh, going a little bit back into uh, uh, Jerry's um, story, because there was something else which I, when I was doing a little bit of research for this, that I found out about Jerry um, leads on to something which isn't criminal related, but quite interesting about Memphis. And that was, uh, he was a student at the technical high school in Memphis. What I didn't know was that that used to be where there was a huge mansion. There was uh, the Van Vliet mansion in Memphis. Uh, this was um, a guy called uh, Peter Van Vliet, who was the owner of the Van Vliet Mansfield Drugs Company, um, which in the sort of uh, late 1800s was the biggest pharmaceutical company in the US and he built this huge mansion up in Memphis uh, it was had great big uh, Corinthian pillars out the front and uh, had huge greenhouses out the back full of tropical plants and um, when he passed away in the early 1900s um, his widow then sold it to the city they pulled it down and they built the technical school on top of it but they actually kept some of the design that he had for his mansion for the uh, for the school so the corinthian pillars are still there and there's two great big stone lions apparently that used to be outside but they donated to memphis zoo so um this was kind of all new to me and it was quite interesting though that uh, memphis had this this huge palatial manor at one time um, that then uh, that then got pulled down so uh, it's always nice when you're sort of researching these things that you find out a little bit more about the city as well and the sort of history of the people and the places there yeah anyway, lots of so, rabbit trails <laughs> yeah exactly um so uh, but i slightly digress from uh, from from jerry there yeah so jerry goes up to sun studio um he does the the single and all of a sudden everyone is kind of all over him they they believe that he's got what it takes to be the next big rock and roller by this time elvis has gone on to rca um jerry lee lewis has, has gone on to different things johnny cash has moved down to nashville there's all the all the big stars have gone and of course they're looking to make the next rock and roll star so um george klein who uh was uh, a good friend of elvis's and also was a big DJ uh, in Memphis. I think he was on uh, WHBQ and he was on uh, some of the, the local TV shows as well. He wanted to be Jerry's manager. Uh, so this guy is is being sort of headhunted by the big names in the music industry, but he just doesn't want anything to do with it. He just wants to go out and rob and steal. That's all he wants to go and do. So talk about a self sabotager. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's strange that that someone would have that mindset. So he would uh, he, he he went on the run basically. I mean, he was into everything from uh, robbing banks to to stealing to to uh, counterfeiting money. That was a big thing of his as well. So he uh, does this does this single. Then he decides no crime is his thing. So he picks up all these arrests in uh, in Memphis and then he goes on the run. And he is on the run then for pretty much the rest of his life. He's he's sort of dipping in and out of Memphis every now and again as well. And although he has sort of not decided to go with music as his main time profession, he is still performing music. He still has a musical bug. And 
even though he was wanted, he was still on the roads and still performing. So he would perform concerts under assumed names. I think when they were doing this documentary, um, which is called Very Extremely Dangerous. Uh, strange <laughs> title, but uh, it's, it's, it's well worth checking out. I wish we could um, name that ep- this episode that. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but it's exactly. probably some sort of rule against it. That's a great well, name. <laughs> that, or you, could, you could change it to Extremely Very Dangerous. I don't know. There's, there's maybe a, a play on words there somewhere. <laughs> Um, so he is, he is out on the, uh, the run and he's performing under about six different aliases at this time. So he probably more than that, but he, they're the six that they would be able to find. He ended up working for uh, the country music star, Waylon Jennings, and he was his road manager. He was uh, performing with him as well. And, and often when uh, Jerry was out on the road, when he was on the run and he was going between gigs and he was doing different things, he would, like I say, he would have to be in disguise and he would often go out and drag as well. So he would get the wig on, the makeup, the dress and whatever else to go and do it. So you've got this kind of cross-dressing country music star who is also a criminal as well. Very, very strange. Um, I love it. So Jerry went on the road with Bailey Jennings, uh, was also his rhythm guitarist for a while as well, performing under the name of Curtis Buck. Performing with Waylon, he also did um, a number of songwriting episodes for for Waylon Waylon as well and what actually stopped Jerry working with Waylon was metal detectors being put into place in airports because Jerry had a habit of carrying a a minimum of three firearms wherever he went and of course when they put metal detectors in he could no longer take those through so (laughs) uh, just 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 crazy Um, but he did like I say, he did sort of uh, crop up in Memphis every now and again. And in the early 70s, he was recording at Ardent Studios, which is up on National Street, I think. Big musical history there. Led Zeppelin recorded there. Bob Dylan, Isaac Hayes, and they all recorded there. And Jerry, in amongst his various criminal activities, he nipped in there and recorded a few more tracks as well. But these are actually still unreleased. I don't know who has them. I don't know where they are. They must be in a vault somewhere. But those ones are, are still unreleased. And uh, in the 1970s as well, he also took part in a film project. There was a film project, um, sort of avant-garde film project about the music scene in the South, in Mississippi, in in Tennessee, and down in New Orleans as well. And um, you can actually see some of this footage on YouTube, I think, of um, Jerry taking part in this documentary. And um, typical of Jerry McGill, he is on this documentary brandishing a gun, um, talking about music and talking about his criminal career. And some of it was actually filmed at the Sam Phillips recording studio, the afterwards to Sun Studio, when Sam went up to uh, and set up his own recording studio. And during the course of the filming, Jerry actually fired his gun a a few times. And the bullet holes are still in the roof of the uh, Sam Phillips recording studio. So... uh, I did yeah. not know to look for those when I was there. Yeah, because if I go back, I'm gonna have featured to look. that uh, featured that in the book, didn't you? I think, and it was also was that one of your podcasts as well? I think the recording studio, a blog post. Uh, they invited post, us to right. come and do a tour, so we got to go look around. Which um, I, I don't know if they allow more people now, but at the time, it was not something that they usually did so we're super thankful <laughs> yeah you were really lucky to get in there because we we could never get in there and we've been trying for quite a few years to take groups in there because 
Stanfield's obviously the big Elvis connection there. So uh, it was really nice to see the pictures that you put on because we'd never seen inside it before. And uh, that great sort of 70s decor that's still in there. Oh, it's fantastic. um, And the office, the office is still there, original, the bar, there's a little like bar in there. They used to make all their deals is pretty cool. (laughs) Excellent. Well, hopefully one day we may get uh, get a tour inside there ourselves. So we're sort of looking forward to that. But yeah, the bullet holes apparently from uh, Jeremy Gill are still in the roof of uh, in the ceiling of the Sanford's recording studio. So uh, if you do get the get the chance, it's uh, well worth checking those out. So, um, yeah, so he, he was on the run for sort of the next 20 years. Um, he did a little bit of prison time for illegal weapons and um, attempted murder. They, they had an attempted murder uh, incarceration down in Florida as well. And then he kind of went off the radar. But then in 2009, he resurfaced online when uh, someone on a, on a uh, website was asking about him and what happened to him. And as a result of which, a, an Irish film uh, company decided to make this documentary very extremely dangerous about him and the film shows um, how after 50 years he just reunited with one of his old high school girlfriends from Memphis and the, the film actually took him back to Memphis uh, at this time um, uh, Jerry was also suffering from cancer and it was almost a kind of redemption piece. Jerry realized that he'd spent so many years just committing crimes and, and sort of wasting his life that it was almost a bit of a redemption piece. And the film actually takes him back to Memphis and shows his first hometown gig in many years um, where he was performing at the uh, High Tone Cafe. So it was kind of a, 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 an almost a full circle, if you like, that the film shows him starting in Memphis and then this kind of... Uh, how it led him back to Memphis and led him back to his musical career as well. So it was a, it's a nice little documentary if you get the chance to check it out. That's and I cool. Think it went on, I think it won a prize at the um, Memphis Film Festival as well. It was a special jury prize or something as well. So uh, it got quite sort of highly lauded, um, but uh, it's probably online somewhere, Netflix or someone probably has it. Uh, but yeah, uh, Jerry then passed away in uh, 2013 at the age of um, 73 and it's just a really interesting story of this sort of this guy who had such a talent for music but decided to go the other way and he's one of those stars we always think of the wild men of rock and roll people like Jerry Lee Lewis who you know just tore up the streets of Memphis and up at Hernando's hideaway that the little bar up there um, at the end of Elvis Presley Boulevard all those years ago but Jerry was really kind of like the first outlaw music star um, you get the outlaw country scene but Jerry was sort of way way before that and and was legitimate as well I mean the, the prison time and all these arrests as well so <laughs> just just a really crazy character that is fascinating I'm going to note really quick because there are there are a lot of um, links and things that I think we could put up on the show notes. So I just tell everybody now real quick pictures and links and I'm going to look and see if that very extremely dangerous if I can link up to that somewhere will be at memphistypehistory.com slash crime. That's what will make it for this one. Excellent. Excellent. (laughs) It's kind of uh, Memphis has always had this history of uh, leading on from that sort of music stars 
who had been behaving badly. Um, Elvis, of course, he he was arrested in in Memphis. He had a couple of fracas with people in his in his early career. People obviously wanted to uh, make a name for themselves, and and how better than to try and start a fight with Elvis Presley? And of course, some of the most famous ones, um, Ozzy Osbourne, of course, one of my fellow countrymen who was arrested down on Beale Street for being drunk and disorderly, pretty much like me, actually. Um, so uh, yes. <laughs> He was, um, I, th- I think he was found staggering drunk in Beale Street. He, uh, he was another one who's uh, obviously been arrested there. And Jerry Lee Lewis, we, who we were talking about earlier, of course, is another person who, who springs to mind there was the, uh, the time that uh, he drove up to uh, the gates of Graceland and crashed into the front pillar there uh, and got out brandishing a gun, uh, wanting to see Elvis. Uh, the story's kind of become a little bit embellished over the years that he went up to... to uh, Graceland to actually shoot Elvis. Um, it wasn't actually the case. He was drinking in a bar and Elvis called him and said, I want to see you up at Graceland. So Jerry then um, drove up to, to Graceland in his, in his Rolls Royce, I think it was. And then the bar owner actually gave him a gun to take. And that's why he got out brandishing the gun. But again, it's just one of those kind of wild stories of, of music stars that really you don't get these days. So these, these guys were just, uh, <laughs> you know, as, as much as they were sort of, mainstream entertainers as well they never really kind of forgot their rough and ready roots which is uh, which is nice so it's uh it's sort of a legitimacy about these memphis music stars that uh, you just don't get with today's modern acts musicians behaving badly in memphis i like it <laughs> <laughs> so good. i think there's probably some links as well across to the various um uh arrests and things there's some great mug mug shots of ozzy osborne actually um from the uh police station i think Someone had told me that they were actually taken. There used to be a police um, station actually on Beale Street itself that is now a bar. And oh. it used to, I remember going in there a few years back when it, I think it may have been a police station. I can't remember, but they had a police museum in there. It may have been in the basement, but um, Interesting. Uh, yeah, I think at one time it did have, have that on there. So uh, it kind of makes sense. The, the <laughs> easy, easiest way to catch uh, drunk and disorderly is just, just get them as they're coming out the bars. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, well, who's up next? Okay. So what's our next uh, ne'er-do-well? Let's talk about uh, a, a, another uh, part of Memphis history, which a lot of people don't know about. And this is about Memphis being involved in one of the biggest entertainment scandals of all time. Uh, Going back to the 1970s, we're going to talk about uh, one of the most profitable films of all time, uh, released in 1972. We've we've all heard of it, um, this this particular film, but not everyone will admit to watching it. Um, I'm talking about the film Deep Throat, uh, which came out in 1972. And uh, this was kind of the film which launched the mainstream adult entertainment industry if you like obviously before that you had Hugh Hefner with with Playboy magazine etc but this this particular film Deep Throat was the first adult movie which had a plot and it basically revolutionized what had been up until then a very kind of seedy under-the-counter kind of industry and all of a sudden, this, this film bursts onto the scene and everyone is talking about it. You had um, Bob Hope, you had Johnny Carson actually mentioning Deep Throat on their TV chat shows. You had celebrities going to watch it. There's, there's film footage, I think, as news reports of the time of people like Frank Sinatra going into movie theaters in New York to watch Deep Throat. It, it was a, a complete kind of 
boom period for that adult industry. And it brought on this term, which was called porno chic. It was a time when pornography came out the seedy back streets and was put into mainstream uh, culture, which I guess then led to what we have today. I mean, you, you watch music videos of modern music stars and, and they're pretty raunchy. And, and the way that all of a sudden adult entertainment almost became legitimate. Uh, obviously, it's always had it. Under the counter, slightly uh, backstreet appeal to it, but it, at that time, Deep Throat was the one thing that kind of pushed it out there and made mainstream stars of its uh, main main actors and actresses. Now, this film came out, like I say, 1972, um, hugely profitable because it was only made for twenty five thousand dollars, I think. Um, shut wow. down in Miami, and um, was was. Uh, absolutely massive played in all the big movie theaters and of course when you have something like this you're going to get the other side of society who do not like it at all and there was a huge huge uproar there was a huge backlash from people saying how dare this become modern entertainment how dare this become something that uh, should be seen in in uh, anything other than the grindhouse cinemas this this stuff should be shouldn't be uh, talked about. And, and there was a big moral uh, crusade against Deep Throat in particular. And as a result of which, the government at that time, uh, President Nixon, was was almost forced to then start handing out subpoenas to the people who made it, the people who were acting and actually acting in, in the movie itself, and trying to uh, basically sweep it all under the rug. So they had to make examples. They didn't want this this stuff going on. They didn't want it to, to all of a sudden become the norm. And so they started handing out court cases for obscenity, for all sorts of different things. And uh, there was a number of trials over the uh, the years. There was one, I think, in Chicago. There was one in New York as well. And the way that they, they, they were able to do it was that they were using some kind of very, very old, outdated laws saying that the cinemas and the projectionists, in fact, it was actually the people working the projectors in these movie houses who were often the ones who were taken to court because they were seen That's to be crazy. the ones. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they, they, had, they were just going to work. They weren't doing anything. They were just, uh, just doing their uh, everyday job and all of a sudden they're being hauled into court and, and being given these huge fines um, or being put on huge bails that they obviously couldn't afford to, to do. Uh, but of course, the problem with that is that you can't then really prosecute anyone. It's very difficult to do that. I think the charge that they actually gave to these projectionists was commercial obscenity and felony possession of a criminal instrument. Now, that would normally be used for someone carrying a gun or a knife. All these people had were a movie projector. And, yeah. and that was the criminal <laughs> instrument. So uh, really, really, uh, really strange. So anyway, these, these, other, these other cases collapsed. New York, particularly, that, that one didn't go any further. And, of course, the reason is there's all that old saying is, how can you offend a New Yorker? You really can't. You can't <laughs> offend anyone in New York. It's impossible. So the government got wise. The government kind of thought, well, how can we do this? How can we go somewhere where we can then actually get a conviction we can actually do something about this so of course they thought well we're better let's go down to memphis so they went down to uh, memphis and they went to the lamar theater 
which I think you may have featured somewhere. I think it's in the book, or yeah. you may you may put the Lamar in a yeah. It's in and, the book. Uh, that's what that's where they seized the copy of Deep Throat. And the idea was, of course, that if you could get a conviction down in Memphis, there was nowhere other than Memphis that you could really get a conviction because they knew that Memphis being the buckle of the Bible Belt, it was going to cause huge moral uproar. So that's what they did. So you've got um, the the main uh, actor in the film was a guy called Harry Reams. Um, he actually was working on the film just on the sound and lighting, but then somehow became the main star of the film. He started <laughs> acting in it. Um, it's a bit of a strange one if you go to work and then all of a sudden you're doing something completely different. Uh, but ha- Harry Reams Very was Very completely different. Very completely <laughs> different on that one. And um, Harry Reams... Uh, there was uh, unfortunately not with us anymore, but he did an, an interview where he was, uh, he says that he was at his um, apartment in New York and the FBI came around and they basically said, right, that's it. You're under arrest. And he was extradited down to Memphis. Now the other little twist in the tale here as well is that the film itself or the film industry, particularly for these more how should we say um specialist films um was run by organized crime in new york so you had the mafia families in new york who were controlling a lot of these the a lot of these films the government then they they had the best outcome because when they started digging they found out that the film had been distributed with mafia money and two of the biggest mobsters in New York at that time were then also extradited down to Memphis. So you had at this time in Memphis, not only um, this guy, Harry Reams, who was the actor, but you had some of the most powerful gangsters from New York coming to Memphis t- to do this, this court trial as well. Um, so it was, it was yeah, a strange time. And um, they were so, so convinced they were going to get conviction down there. And at the time, this was one of the costliest court cases ever to take place in memphis i think it may even hold the record i think they estimated at that time so obviously inflation now would be much much higher but at the time it was something like four million dollars it took over this nine-week trial to try and get a conviction but as it turned out they couldn't do it because the laws that they were trying to prosecute them under unfortunately had changed so they were trying to they changed in 1973, just a year after the movie had come out. So luckily, they were trying to convict these guys of something that happened in 1972, but with laws which were taking place then, and the 73 laws kind of outlawed it. So um, again, I'll send some links across. You can get more of a, an idea of what the, how the laws have changed in that time. So let me get it straight. Or make sure I have it straight. So they were trying them for something in 1972, but by 1973, I guess the laws had loosened up. They had, yes. Okay. Okay. There had been a a slight change um, to some of the obscenity laws. So there was a kind of loophole there. Um, Uh, I think uh, Harry Reams did actually get one conviction, but it was he then went to a a, a retrial and um, he was then he was heavily bankrolled as well by people like Jack Nicholson, uh, people like that, Warren Beatty as well. They they all put money towards him because they felt that he was just a kind of a scapegoat for this. He was an actor. He was he he appeared in wasn't even an actor. He was like, what? What do you say? The lighting guy? 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, he, he then became the main actor, but he, he yeah. wasn't an actor by trade. It was just <laughs> yeah. happened to be there at the time. So, and uh, as a little bit of a, a, a sort of trivia, because after all these trials that took place, and after Memphis in particular, Harry Reams obviously became a bit of a star in his own right. And he also had the backing of Hollywood, like I say, all these big Hollywood actors at that time and people in Hollywood were uh, behind him and, and pushing him. And he was actually due to play the role of the coach in the movie Grease. If you remember. Really? Yeah. I remember that guy. Yeah, exactly. He does the, the couple of scenes with John Travolta where he's talking through the different sports that he can do. And yeah. um, he was actually, I, I can't remember the coach's name, but anyway, he was, um, I want to say it was Coach Calhoun. I, yeah, I, that's it. That like a when I dredged that little bit of I don't know, but as soon as you said it, I know it's, <laughs> it's right. <laughs> I, I promise I'm not a big Grease expert or anything. It's not my favourite film at all. Uh, but um, yeah, he was actually due to take the role of the coach in that. But the movie company, I think Paramount were the ones who put it out, said um, they didn't want him in it because they felt that he would actually hurt the film's profits, particularly in the southern states where, obviously, after the court case, there were a lot of people who were uh, very much against him. Uh, another interesting thing about that court case as well, there, there was an interview of Harry Reams um, when he actually came back to Memphis and there was a picture of him in front of the Lamar Theatre. And he said during, the, during the, the court case, he was hearing a lot of stories that he didn't know about. The, the, the way that organized crime was was making money out of this film was was quite horrific you know they would go to movie theaters they would demand money if they were sh if a movie theater was shown the film they would demand that they have the profits from it even if they hadn't supplied the print and and there was stories of managers of movie theaters being beaten with baseball bats and all, all kinds of things that harry reams had no idea about and despite all this he would say that he would come out of the courthouse every day and people would yell abuse at him and throw things at him, but they wouldn't throw things at these mafia guys who would be coming out at the same time as well. They didn't care that these guys committed these horrible crimes and these beatings and assaults on people. All they cared about was that Harry Reams had been an actor in what they felt was an, uh, an absolutely horrible movie and an obscene movie and he was the one getting all the abuse and and sadly after memphis um it actually led to harry reams becoming an alcoholic um in an interview he actually said it was in memphis where it all started to go wrong and after that he he sort of then drifted in and out of of addiction problems and and never really managed to find his way back he became a born-again christian uh, later on in life and repented obviously what he did but Memphis was where it all really started to change for him and, and people, particularly in the South, saw him as almost the sort of devil incarnate, if you like. They, they didn't care about these these other crimes. It was just the fact that Harry had been in this film and, and, and obviously uh, he was just seen as absolutely immoral but uh, yeah another interesting part of memphis history there that uh, this this movie which has gone down in kind of pop culture if you like um, and of course uh, Deep Throat uh, was also the name that was then used for the Watergate scandal as well, the, uh, the, the, the guy there. So again, it's, it's something which runs through modern popular culture, but has a big part in, in, uh, in Memphis history as well that not a lot of people know about. So all these big mafia guys and these guys from the film industry were being extradited down to Memphis and held there while this nine-week trial took place. Interesting. So, That's so uh, crazy. What a crazy story.
<laughs> so I'll send some uh, clips across to you though, um, so that people can see. There's some there's some good news reports from the time as well, I think, and and various bits and pieces. There's uh, some documents. There's a letter I think that um, Harry Reem sent across to the uh, judges in the courthouse, obviously asking for a retrial and and various bits. So uh, it's it's another interesting part of, of Memphis history there. So. Yeah, um, that'd be interesting. I want to, I'm ready to see that stuff. That'd be great. Okay, so uh, let's move on to the next one now. Uh, right. now this one is, is another uh, interesting story. Of course, today, one of the big uh, ways that law enforcement are able to capture criminals is through um, uh, detection, through voice recording through bugging telephones, rooms, et cetera, et cetera, uh, wiretaps and all the rest of it. And something I, I didn't know about was that actually a lot of the modern technology and a lot of the way that wiretaps work came from Memphis because way back when the police and, and uh, the FBI, et cetera, weren't really wiretapping anybody. They, it wasn't seen as a, as a way of, of actually getting criminal convictions no one had really thought about it the technology really wasn't there as well and it wasn't until the 1950s when you had the issue with communism um, that this started becoming more and more uh, widespread across um, law enforcement agencies but from what i understand the way that they actually got hold of their technology and the way that they actually were able to advance that was that in the sort of 1930s and 40s and in the start of the 1950s as well it was actually criminals who were wiretapping their rivals. They would obviously uh, want to find out about what their, their uh, rival, rivals were up to, and they were wiretapping them. And a lot of that technology actually came through Memphis because of the Memphis recording industry. So, of course, you had places like Sun Studio, et cetera, and, and obviously a lot of that equipment was, was being used down there. Um, and they say that, a lot of that stuff was then taken by criminals thinking, oh, okay, well, let's use some of this, this, uh, this great new technology and we'll use, it, uh, we'll use it for ourselves for a slightly nefarious reason as opposed to the actual reason it was, it was made for. So it was kind of interesting to learn that uh, maybe there's some truth in that, I guess, to an extent, that uh, that's where it all kind of started from, really. It seems like uh, we keep getting music and and shady crime things going together here <laughs> they do there does seem to be that doesn't it, it does it's seem to be this common common theme in, in amongst all this so um so uh well this this uh, actually brings me on to um uh, machine gun cully obviously that's a name that a lot of people know about and and not the popular rapper i believe of, of today's music you see i am down with the kids and i know what they listen to uh machine gun <laughs> kelly we're talking about is the uh, is the prohibition uh, era gangster um who was also a resident at the infamous alcatraz prison as well um sort of always mentioned uh, machine gun kelly in the same breath as people like uh, al capone and the birdman of alcatraz etc he was uh, one of the big villains of the time um there in uh, the prohibition era and had uh, obviously the name came from the fact that uh, he was a contract killer um he was also a bank robber as well and uh, his weapon of choice was of course the machine gun um but uh, yeah, a Memphis resident, another uh, another 
Memphis resident there with a with a dark history. Real name was uh, George Kelly Barnes, and he was he was born in uh, eighteen ninety five. Uh, he went to the Central High School in Memphis. I'm not sure which one that is. Um, Memphis has got so many schools. I have oh, to say, so many schools. <laughs> I mean, I know I know Hume's High School because that's where Elvis went. So we do that one. But there's a there's a number of, of different schools as you drive around. So unbelievable amount of schools. It's, it's schools and churches. That's what yeah. I always find in, in And so many schools that have closed. Oh, really? So there's a lot of people who went to schools that don't exist anymore, but they can tell you all about them. That's really <laughs> interesting. That's strange because schools don't often, I mean, I don't know about over there, but in the UK, it's, schools don't really close down. It's, uh, it's usually because the population gets bigger. We actually have to build schools. So, um, but uh, yeah, and, and what I like about the schools you have in Memphis as well, there's such grand designs as well. Some of them, yes. absolutely fantastic. Yeah. The way that they're, they're built, and um, some look like little colleges. <laughs> do yes, that's that's how they remind me of. And uh, as we were saying earlier on about the uh, technical high school there with the Corinthian pillars and all the rest of it, it's uh, it's absolutely fantastic. So, so yes, uh, Machine Gun Kelly, uh, George Kelly Barnes, and his most infamous crime i guess is the um kidnapping of an oil tycoon um a guy called charles urschel in uh, 1933 and he was held to ransom and uh, machine gun kelly and his gang collected a two hundred thousand dollar ransom money i believe but uh the problem was despite the fact that they committed this crime they were what you call clever criminals and they'd actually left a lot of evidence behind at the scene of the crime and as a result of which there was a subsequent fbi investi- investigation and um machine gun kelly was then arrested in uh, memphis in uh, september 1933 um also an armed robber he was into bootlegging as well obviously back at that time that was a big thing in the prohibition era um, but yeah, like I say, he, he, a real kind of um, well-known name of that era in, in the crime genre, if you like. Um, and there's some great pictures uh, online. I'll send them across awesome. with uh, Machine Gun Kelly being led out of the Shelby County Jail um, after his trial on on route to Memphis Airport. And uh, he was actually arrested in um, Rayner Street, which if I remember rightly, is not that far away from the Stax Museum. Um, it's in that part of town, I think. Might be Whitehaven Way. It's it's kind of down there by the um, by the cemetery. Uh, you've got the cemetery down there as well. I, I have to uh, look into it properly. But if, if I remember rightly, Rayner Street is around that way. But that's where he was eventually arrested by the FBI and Memphis Police. And uh, is that where he as, lived, or was he hiding out? Do you know? Uh, that that was his hideout. That was his okay. hideout at the time. Um, and uh, when when the uh, the law enforcement officials made their way there, he uh, shouted out, "Don't shoot, G men! Don't shoot!" Um, and, and he came out and gave up pretty easily, actually. At the same time that he was arrested, there's not a lot of news reports about finding, uh, about Machine Gun Kelly, because on the same, if I remember rightly, the, the, the night that he was arrested, um, you had the Dillinger gang. Obviously, Dillinger was public enemy number one. Yeah, I learned and, that from the movie with Johnny Depp. Ah, Gunn. exactly, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, Hollywood's good for some things, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> and um, 
he his gang actually escaped from a penitentiary in Michigan City, Indiana, the same night. So that would kind of made the news as opposed to Machine Gun Kelly getting arrested. Ah. After that, he ended up in Alcatraz. He was um, one of the big names who were there. But when he was in Alcatraz, he then had a different nickname. He was actually nicknamed Pop Gun Kelly because he. That's not as exciting. Not an exciting, really. Not as threatening. That's either, a, that's I, I a step think. down. <laughs> that's not a real step far. down. <laughs> and um, it turned out that he wasn't actually the sort of tough guy gangster that um, he made himself out to be. And in Alcatraz, he was actually a bit of a model prisoner. He was actually a bit scared of the authority and the regime down there. And as opposed to other um, criminals who were there who would play up to the uh, their, their names and would cause trouble in the prison. He just wanted to get on with his time, but he was there, therefore sort of looked down by the other inmates who uh, gave him that slightly uh, demeaning Pop Gun Kelly nickname there. Uh, <laughs> but he's uh, featured in a lot of films over the years as well. Charles Bronson played him in a, in a film, if I remember rightly. There was a film called Machine Gun Kelly, and I think the great late actor charles bronson was uh was the one who portrayed him in that one wow um he left um alcatraz and then went to the big um prison in leavenworth i think that's the the big one that you have there in the states and uh, passed away in 1954 um and is buried um down in uh texas in a in a small town called cottondale in, in texas why I'm not sure, actually. That's a, that's a very good point, actually. I'm not entirely sure why he was buried down there. I have to look into that one. It may have something to do with his wife. His, his wife was still alive, so whether or not she was living down there at the time, I'm not sure. I know a lot of that. Uh, sometimes people uh, just have it for convenience purposes. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm living here, so I'll bury you here so I don't have to travel to, to, to see your grave. So yeah. it could, could be why, I guess, but I'll have a look into that. But So was he in jail for the rest of his life or did he just serve he a sentence and then get out? No, he was in there for the rest of his life. So wow. um, he, he was arrested in 33 and uh, died in 54. So mm-hmm. um, after being caught, he was uh, yeah incarcerated for, for the rest of his time. I think he has a tie to Leahy's as well in Memphis. All right. Okay. I feel like his name came up. There used to be, um, are you familiar with Leahy's, the trailer, uh, Leahy's trailer park or uh, it's had various different names, but yeah, I, I am. I think at one time, didn't it have a sort of a bordello there yes. as well? Yeah. Yeah. And I think he's rumored to have spent some time there when he was in Memphis. Among, oh, okay. um, uh, amongst other gangsters and various shady types. Right. Okay. I, I will just go on record saying now that I, I don't have an intricate knowledge of bordellos. That's just something I picked up along the way. So I, No, they okay. did. They had a big, I think it was maybe two stories or something and it was torn down. I think there's, I've seen maybe like one postcard that has it on there. Oh, but wow, even okay. that I'm not positive about it. It really, it wasn't around um, in, like more recent history. Right. Right. Okay. I, yeah, I had heard something about that. So that would, uh, that would make sense. And of course, a lot of these guys were probably um, also uh, working together. They probably collaborating, etc. So yeah, I, I can see that. Cause I think there was a rumor that even Al Capone had visited 
um, he'd, he'd come yes. from Memphis at some yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. These guys were kind of a, a small unit, really, um, and they all worked together. So, um, and they all had the sort of same notoriety as well. So, I, yeah, I could, could see that that would possibly be the case. So, it's so interesting to me because, you know, I guess Chicago, New York, Memphis, why? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's strange, isn't it? These, these, uh, yeah, they're they're the sort of the, the two that you always think of: Chicago and, and New York being the big sort of prohibition um, era places for gangsters and, and the criminal fraternity. And then, you, then you've got Memphis, which at that time as well was still quite rural and and almost industrial as well. But I yeah, guess like like Leahy's. I mean, I'm not sure of the years for all this stuff. I'd have to like go look at my research on it. Um, because I'm just talking without preparing to talk about Leahy's, but I mean that the reason that that little place exists is because summer used to be the main thoroughfare from Arkansas to the rest of the country. And so this Ah. was like a stopover where you could actually in the early days actually camp there. It was like a camping place or like live like itinerant sort of transient people lived there um, like a lot of the circus performers who would come through Memphis, they would live right. there for part of the year, stuff like that. So it was kind of this really strange little spot on what used to be the thoroughfare between, you know, I guess east and west of the Mississippi. Okay. Yeah, that would. Uh, and I guess the other thing is with the the river being there as well, that would be an easy way of, of, of shipping. Um, back then you would have the illegal alcohol trade. So that might have been a way of shipping that in and out too. Um, and I guess Chicago, New York, they were geared up for that. So they had the FBI presence. They had the big police presence. But Memphis probably wasn't quite as controlled as those places. And as we've heard as well, the uh, officials down in places like Memphis um, – didn't sound as if they weren't akin to taking a backhander or a bribe to turn the other way. So it was probably quite an open city in terms of being able to do criminal acts without having too much attention drawn to them. Interesting. Yeah. It's an interesting one to, to look into though, most definitely to, to sort of see about that. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's strange that sort of Alcatraz has got that reputation of being this kind of, um, place where all these big criminals went it's it still fascinates people you had films like escape from alcatraz with clint eastwood you had the burman of alcatraz the movie there as well and that whole um prohibition era of of crime al capone particularly um is still i don't know it's almost romanticized slightly as well i guess the way that people dress and and all the rest of it and you see it in popular culture as well it's it's still referred to these very uh these very smart looking guys and, and, and their suits and hats and all the rest of it. And then uh, it's strange, like you say, that you, you think of one of these people, Machine Gun Kelly, who again, the name is so well known um, coming from Memphis. It's, uh, it's really strange, but again, a, a very, a very interesting part of Memphis's darker history right there too. So uh, yeah. Yeah, interesting to know that he, that that's where he's from. In fact, I didn't even know about that until quite recently when I was looking into something else, and I had no idea that that was actually where he was from. So it was uh, it was quite a revelation to find that one out. Um, and then the last one uh, 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 we were talking about was uh, uh, Sputnik Monroe. It, this is only a really sort of a, a short story, but it's got quite a, a, an interesting story to it as well. Um, this was a guy called. Uh, 
Roscoe Monroe Brumba. He was actually born Roscoe Monroe Merrick. And this guy was uh, a, a Memphis wrestler. It's a lot of names for one person. It's a lot of names for one person. And uh, th- this, was, uh, this was a guy who was a Memphis wrestler. Um, uh, a wrestler? Wrestling. Yeah. Okay, um, or, cool. Or, or, or wrestling, as, as, as you call it down there in Memphis, was, and, and is, I think, still quite a big uh, um, sport down there in Memphis. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, it's uh, almost seen as the the sort of the holy ground of of the sport, and you've got people who uh, Jerry the King Lawler is the, the big guy down there, isn't he? He's uh, got his bar down on there on Beale Street, and it's, it's sort of a a well known household name. But particularly in the sort of forties through to the nineteen seventies, it was such a huge sporting attraction that all the big venues in Memphis would have their own matches, the Mid-South Coliseum, of course, and also down at the Ellis Auditorium, which then became, was demolished, but then became the Cook Convention Center down there on Riverfront. I mean, it was such a big deal that in the 1950s, there's even a picture of Elvis playing, I think, 1954? It's either late 54 or early 55. And he's actually playing the intermission show of the wrestling matches. There's him um scotty moore and bill black all performing in the wrestling ring i mean you know this is yeah if if your if your intermission act is elvis you know it's got to be pretty big yeah the the thing at the time of course um that uh, we're talking about with spotman monroe was of course the horrible era of segregation so you had uh white people sitting in the floor seats whereas the black population were forced to sit up in the balcony in the lesser seats. And uh, Sputnik Monroe, um, as he he became known in uh, wrestling, he took the name Sputnik uh, in the 1950s when there was a lot of press about the space race between the USA and Russia and the uh, Russians were putting these Sputniks into space, etc. And um, isn't that also, isn't there a... uh, What's the famous sign that you've got in, um, there's a neon sign that you've got there in, in Memphis, which is like a Sputnik as well. It's called the Sputnik. It's called the Sputnik. <laughs> it's That's not a, just a clever name. <laughs> no, no, no. It's called the Sputnik. And it's, it's uh, technically a rotosphere. Oh, okay. The type of sign that it is. But it's at Joe's Wines and Liquor. Ah, right. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, so that, that that was a big thing back then. Um, the Sputniks, a big big part of popular culture. It was in the oh, music, yeah. etc. So, so he kind of took this uh, this name of of Sputnik Monroe. He had a couple of names before then as well. He'd uh, gone under the name Rock Monroe and Pretty Boy Monroe, and I think he'd even used the name Elvis as well to sort of ca- cash in on that particular uh, bandwagon. <laughs> uh, but then he he went by the name Sputnik Monroe. And uh, it's a catchy name. I like the one he landed on. It's it's nice, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's, it's got a, a certain ring to it, I have to say. And uh, he was uh, kind of a flashy character. Um, he had this uh, black hair, but through the center of it, he had a kind of he, he dyed the center of his hair blondish white. So he had this kind of almost blonde white Mohican going through the rest of his hair. All right. And uh, he, he would walk around Memphis. He would dress up in these really flamboyant clothes, purple gowns. He'd have a, a diamond-tipped cane as well. That's cool. I like it. Yeah. He was kind of like Elvis before Elvis, if you like. He, he was probably getting that stuff from Lansky's, actually. Um, I'd imagine that was probably where he was buying a lot of that stuff from. Yeah. Um, but at the time, uh, Beale Street was one of those places that was hugely segregated, but also was one of the places where 
you really wouldn't see many white people going. In fact, none really went to, to Beale Street. It was seen as the black area of town. The bars were seen as places that um, black people would drink in. But Sputnik Monroe, he absolutely, and rightly so, hated segregation. He, he actually felt a real a kinship to, to the black population as, as well. And he wanted segregation to be abolished, but particularly the matches as well. In fact, he was one of the ones who really kind of started off by saying that he wouldn't wrestle unless audiences were actually mixed. And promoters obviously then knew that he would always bring in big audiences. They, they make good money. So as a, as a result, audiences then started to become more mixed at the wrestling matches that he would perform at. But uh, getting back to the sort of criminal side of Sputnik Monroe, um, what he used to do is he would go drinking on Beale Street. He would actually go into bars and he would openly drink with anyone in the bar because he said they were his friends. And the police at that time, obviously realizing segregation, there was a, a huge amount of racism as well, would actually come in and arrest Sputnik Monroe for drinking in these bars. He would wow. actually get arrested because of the segregation laws. He would go to jail, he would then make bail, and he would go back straight down onto Beale Street and carry on drinking as well. So he wasn't scared of this. You know, He, he wasn't scared of, of, of breaking the law back then. And he would... Happily, I think that the, what they um, actually got him under was uh, an old law. This is uh, one that doesn't exist anymore. I think it's called mopery. It's a kind of a, a bit of a vague name for minor offences. Um, it's sort of based on the the, the, the word mope of, of someone just sort of hanging around. And I've never heard of that. Yeah, it's, it's sort of one of those very old terms that you sort of look at that probably have changed over the, over the years. Um, but it was one of the ones that the police could use as a charge to bring where no other legitimate sort of offence had been committed. So one of those, one of those ones that the police had a sort of a bit of a, an open right to be able to arrest someone on for whatever charge they wanted. So yeah, he would he would get arrested for, for things like that. And what he would do is he he would hire a black attorney. He would get a, a, a a black attorney he would go to court he'd pay the fine and then he'd go straight back to the bars in beale street and he would carry on drinking and it would happen over and over again he would keep getting arrested but as a result of which again it's probably a clever marketing ploy as well because what then happened was he was wrestling as what is known in the industry as a heel so he was the bad guy he was he was the bad guy but despite that his popularity absolutely soared with a back black population in memphis and of course they would flood in every monday night to see him wrestling so it was very clever on his part as well he knew that he then had a guaranteed audience and of course back then these guys were probably making a cut of the door the more seats that were sold the more money they were making but even even if he was doing it slightly for 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 profit he was also doing it because he really didn't feel that there should be segregation and i'm not saying that he changed the world in any way but certainly back then at those particular matches he was making sure that audiences were mixed and they weren't segregated as well. And he was the very sort of the, the, the sort of forerunner of saying, I'll drink with whoever I want to drink with and I'll go into whatever bar I want to go into. And of course, after a while, the police just got fed up with him because they were just arresting him almost every other day for yeah. drinking in these bars. So, um, yeah, an interesting character there. It's slightly lesser crime, but uh, quite interesting uh, to sort of think that we're only going back sort of 60 70 years now and that someone could be arrested for just drinking in a bar 
because of the other people who were drinking there. I mean, it's horrendous. It really is. And uh, but good to know that there was someone out there who was who was happy to break the law and and, and get some changes. Yeah, my like ending on that guy. Yeah, it, it, a bit more upbeat. Yeah. <laughs> I, see, I can do upbeat. <laughs> I don't want to bring everybody down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was great. Thank you so much. No, thank you for, uh, for for having me on. Hopefully uh, it, it's been interesting. It hasn't been too uh, too too dark and dreary and, and uh, won't put anybody off from, from this. <laughs> please, do, please do another podcast after this one because I'd hate to think that you didn't and I just killed, <laughs> killed everything. <laughs> no, no, no. It's so inappropriate here. So. No, no, no. This is fun. And um, I've got some, if you've still got time, I know we've talked a little longer than planned. So let me no, know if you okay. don't. But if you do no have time, time yep. um, I've got some rapid fire questions for you to close please. this out. I would love to do that. Okay. Well, here we go. Okay. This first one is from Rebecca and I have no context for it. She just said, are these questions for Neil on my list of questions? If so, <laughs> will you please ask this one for me? And she says, is there a connection between Liverpool and Memphis? There is. There is a, a, a big connection there between Liverpool. And actually, there's a couple of them. Um, the first one is that um, I think, i trying to think how many years ago it was, probably going back about six or seven years ago, they actually twinned the two cities together. Really? So, yeah, there was a, a, a twinning ceremony between the two. Now, I don't know how official it was, but I actually went to the... Um, there was a bit of a, a, a do here in the UK and they twinned them up. Um, I have to remember and find some information about it, but they, they did a kind of, uh, it was because of the music scene. So they, they, they twinned the two together. So there was a, a twinning of the towns. In the city of Liverpool, they have a Beatles museum, obviously, best place to have it. Right. And right. Uh, they had um, an Elvis exhibit there at the same time. It was called... Um, Elvis and us, I think it was called, being the links between Elvis and the Beatles and how they both had uh, impacted on popular culture, but also how they both had influenced each other as well. It was 2004. That's when it okay. was. It was 2004. It was the half century of uh, Elvis releasing his first single, um, ah. That's Right Mama. Um, so they twinned the two cities together. And um, uh, Kevin Kane, do you, know, do you know Kevin from the Tourist Information? I don't know him, actually. Oh, okay. So I'd like to. Really nice guy. Oh, well, if uh, next time you're back, we'll uh, have to introduce you because he's a a wonderful, wonderful chap. Big friend of ours here at um, uh, the Elvis side of things. Uh, We've known him for for many years, and he's a really, really nice guy. But he came across. He's the head of the tourist information in Memphis, and he came across and did a talk. And um, the Lord Mayor of Liverpool received the keys to Memphis, to the city of Memphis, and uh, vice versa as well. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was nice. Now, the other um, uh, link between the two cities um, is the cobblestones down on the riverfront. Really? So if go, yeah. If you go down to the uh, riverfront and you've got the, uh, the cobblestones that make up the, the side of the river there, they're all from Liverpool, those stones. That's uh, right. I did. We, I, we just did an episode. Well, I don't know when it wasn't probably just, but we did an episode on steamboats. And uh, I did remember saying that now that the, yeah. <laughs> the cobblestones <laughs> are from Liverpool. And that cobblestone landing is the last one in the U.S. that has is original really? cobblestones on it. Oh, wow. 
that, that, now I now I didn't know, but that's really nice. It's nice that they've kept that there because I know they've done a lot of work down there with the new Beale Street landing, etc. But it's nice that they've kept some of the original part of that down there. But yeah, they used to be used as ballast in the ships so that um, the ships would obviously then be able to float properly. So they were brought across from Liverpool and then the cotton was then uh, replaced them on the way on the way back. Interesting. There's the two links. Cool. Oh, of course, the other the other one, of course, the big one is the Beatles performing at the Mid South Coliseum. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they uh, they uh, they obviously perform there, um, and and I think the Mid South Coliseum is one of only because there's the big thing at the moment that we're we're involved in here at. Um, Strictly Elves is trying to help save the Mid South Coliseum because obviously it's a it's a lovely building. It's got so much history. Yeah, and it'd be such a shame to see uh, see it demolished. And uh, I think it's something like it's the one of only two places left in the world where both Elvis and the Beatles played. So it's uh, it's it'd be nice to see it saved. So uh, yeah, uh, but yeah, that's that's the other that's the other link there, I guess between between the two cities. All right. Next question. And I have to ask you this because there is an Elvis side of things, but but this is a rapid fire answer to a rapid fire question. Okay. All right. Here we go. What's your favorite Elvis story? Favorite favorite Elvis story. Oh my God. You want a rapid fire one. This is going to be really, really difficult. Um, (laughs) That's why I went ahead and said it. Okay. Okay. I got. I got a. a, 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 I got a. a, a, Oh my God! (laughs) You're really (laughs) pushing me on this one. There's so many of them. There are so many. I I guess. I guess it would be the 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 one that everyone knows about, about the one um, Elvis uh, meeting the lady outside the Cadillac showroom in Memphis. She's looking through the window. He comes up to her and buys her the Cadillac. She's looking at this this car and he then buys it for her. I think that's just a, a great story. And it just sums Elvis up. There's this guy, all the money in the world, most, most popular entertainer in the world, biggest star. And yet he still gave back to people and he didn't do it for any other reason than that. He just wanted to give it to them. So yeah, that's probably my favorite one. Very generous. Excellent. If you were stuck in a Memphis bar or as you might put it, pub uh, <laughs> for all eternity, which one would you choose? Can I say the tap room? You can the say whatever room. you want. Okay. Not that I go drinking bars. Apparently Beale Street's got quite a lot of bars, but I, I don't know anything about them. I've never, I've never been to Beale Street, actually. It's funny enough. So. Wait, what? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. That's, that's why I always... That's, it's like that's this, my, uh, this like... I was like, this cannot be true. No, I, no, I feel like... I, I don't know what Neil does at all in Memphis. That's my general joke with my groups that I have no idea what happens on Beale Street. <laughs> I never go down there. I hear it's very good. Um, yeah, I guess the tap room because I think that's about the only bar that I'm not banned from down there. That's a joke, by the way. I'm not banned from anything. <laughs> I'm too good a customer. I mean, it's not the 70s, so have a good time. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the tap room. I really like the tap room. Uh, or that or the Blue City Cafe, which is another great place Excellent. to eat in as well. All right. You're making a movie that's related to Memphis in some way, whatever way you choose. What's okay. the plot and who's in it? Oh, my word. Okay, who's in it and what's the plot? Okay, well, I think maybe some of these stories we've told today would be quite good. I think there's a, there's, there's some possibilities for some great movies being featured there. Very true. Uh, 
this is the really difficult thing as well. Can I can I choose anyone from? Okay, I tell you what. Let's let's choose someone. Let's have Clint Eastwood in there. I I, I like Clint Eastwood. I think he's a solid choice. Guy. Because the other thing is, I don't know many of these new movie stars. I really well. This is a history podcast, so it doesn't have to be modern day necessarily. Excellent. Okay, we'll go with the Sputnik Monroe. I kind of like that one. That's a little bit more upbeat. There's not any murders in that one. <laughs> so my yeah, yeah. Nice story to tell. Let's have Clint Eastwood as uh, Sputnik Monroe, and let's somehow involve my favourite actor of all time in there. We'll have Roger Moore, the, the the late great Sir Roger Moore. He can be in there as well uh, somewhere. I don't know what he could do. Maybe he could be uh, he could be the mayor of the city. I think he'd he'd bring a real gravitas to that. There we go. Nice. Yeah, the Sputnik Monroe story, starring Clint Eastwood and Roger Moore. I, I, I can <laughs> see the Oscar already. I can. I, I know. I can even see where I'm going to put it as well. I've got the shelf space for it. <laughs> oh, perfect. <laughs> well, I'm sure it's coming your way in no time. <laughs> All right, last rapid fire. Would you trade your current accent out in order to blend in here with a southern one? You know, it's strange that sometimes when you get to Memphis, the you occasionally hear yourself dipping into the southern accent. The more that you're actually there, it becomes almost infectious that you start saying your your yawls and 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 the, the voice goes into that slight southern drawl. But no, I I like the English accent. And the other nice thing is that whenever you're in Memphis, because it's still quite a rarity for, I mean, Memphis is a big tourism place, but you don't get that many tourists there really outside of perhaps the two Elvis times of the year. So it yeah. always gets a certain amount of um, interest wherever I go. And I never, ever get um, fed up of being asked if I know the Queen. Um, is Harry Potter real? Um, <laughs> or do I know the Rolling Stones as well? So I never get fed up of those three questions. <laughs> and, and I'm sure you can come up with all sorts of answers depending on your mood. Uh, you know, I mean, absolutely. Depending on how I feel on that particular, and how how much I I want to I want to talk, and who's buying the drinks as well. If they're buying the drinks, and I'll I'll carry on talking forever. So, <laughs> excellent. Well, Neil, this has been a pleasure. No, thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. And sorry about the technical problems this morning as well. And uh, no, no worries at all. We are I we. This was great. I'm so glad I got to connect with you and got to hear all these crazy stories. Show notes again are at memphistypehistory.com/crime. Can I just say to you and Rebecca, thank you uh, for your podcast because it's absolutely phenomenal. It really, really is good. And, uh, you know, it's a joy to listen to because you guys are so fun. You really, it's not boring. You're really getting into it and you're actually teaching me about stuff. The, the, my favorite episode of yours is the Sam Phillips, the, the all-female radio station. Oh, yeah. I love I have, working on that one. <laughs> I had no idea about that whatsoever. Absolutely no idea at all. And 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 listening to that was just a, a an eye opener. It was wow, this is part of history that and obviously Sam Phillips, the elder side of things as well. So that will be something that we will incorporate, I think, into some of our future sightseeing tours. We'll be talking about that when we bring groups over from the UK and we do the Elvis side of things. We'll we'll talk about that on that one. That's great. I'm glad to hear that because I, I didn't know anything about it until, and I talk about this endlessly on that episode, but that Kitchen Sisters podcast, I mean, if you haven't listened to that one, you really should because I took almost everything from it and, and some other sources, but it's so good and they have so many good sound recordings of the, of the ladies who worked there. So I highly recommend yes. it. <laughs> 
it's it's a and so do I. It it really one of my favourites there. It's uh, and like I say, something I never ever heard of before. Um, a great piece of Memphis history that's kind of buried slightly, but really yeah. should be out there because it's a, it's an amazing part of that city. So yeah. yeah, thank you very much for all the hard work that you do in putting these podcasts together. Well, thank you. We appreciate that you're a listener. <laughs> You've been listening to Memphis Type History the podcast, and from here in the UK, we like your type. You've been listening to Memphis Type History, the podcast. It would mean so much to us if you head over to iTunes and give us a rating and review. Be sure to subscribe and never miss an episode. Want to be part of Memphis Type History and get behind the scenes content, merch, and more? Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Memphis Type History. That's Patreon spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Memphis Type History. Find more Memphis Type History on our blog at memphistypehistory.com, on Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest as Memphis Type History, and on Twitter at Memphis Type. 